I invite you this morning, join me in Paul, Peter's, excuse me, second letter, Second Peter chapter 1, Second Peter chapter 1, begin reading at verse 5 and read down to verse 9. Second Peter chapter 1, begin reading here in a moment at the fifth verse. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge and knowledge with self-control and self-control with steadfastness, steadfastness with godliness, godliness with brotherly affection and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. This is... God's Word. Let's pray. Father, as we have been encouraged in worship, as we have indeed confessed our sins, claimed your promise of forgiveness, as we have sung in adoration and joy, as we have already prayed O oh Lord, help us now to continue our worship by hearing and heeding this, your word. May we treat this with the utmost seriousness, with the gravity that it deserves, for it concerns your glory and our eternal souls. O oh Father, do this for us, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. The apostle, just before this, has told us, you have everything you need for life and godliness. Further, you have very great and precious promises. So what are we to do with that information? Assuming these assertions are true, what am I to do next? How am I to make progress in Christian living? How am I to live as a believer? Last time we learned the Lord has given us everything we need for life and godliness. So what's the practical outcome of that? Peter will not leave it alone. He will explain to us now. Listen for a moment, if you would, to... Eugene Peterson's paraphrase in the message. Now I know, I said Eugene Peterson and some of you had a quickening of your pulse. The heresy hunters among us suddenly smell blood in the water. I did not agree with everything that Eugene Peterson ever said or did. 
If I only read those with whom I agreed, I'd be less effective as a Christian and certainly as a preacher. Keep in mind, citing someone, learning from them even, doesn't equal an endorsement. But here I think is paraphrase. Did you hear the word there, paraphrase? Not a translation, paraphrase. Can be helpful. So don't lose a minute in building on what you've been given, complementing your basic faith with good character, spiritual understanding, alert discipline, passionate patience, reverent wonder, warm friendliness, and generous love, each dimension fitting into and developing the others. With these qualities active and growing in your lives, no grass will grow under your feet. No day will pass without its reward as you mature in your experience of our Master Jesus. Without these qualities, you don't see what's right before you. Oblivious that your old sinful life has been wiped off the books. That's actually a pretty good paraphrase of what Peter is driving at here. The doctor, Martin Lloyd-Jones, when he preached from this text back in 1946, entitled it The Balanced Life. Peter is following a very logical order here. He has begun with what is true of us and what God has done for us. Then, having told us the truth, he then moves on to what we're supposed to do. I've said it before, so say I now again. This is the pattern of Christian living. You first learn what is indicative, what is real, what is true. And true of the Lord, true of the gospel, and thus true for you. Then learning that truth, you apply that to the living, the imperative, the matter of how you go about executing the Christian life. The fact is, folks, most of us don't want to work too hard at this business of Christian living. It's just a little bit too much energy, we think, a little more than we want to do. But you see, because you're a Christian, you are to give diligent attention to your own growth. Did you hear that? Because you are a Christian. Not in order to become a Christian, but because you are a Christian, you are to give diligent attention to your own growth. Consider this first, the energy expected. First part of verse 5, for this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith. Do you recognize the gospel isn't much interested in your behavior until after you're saved? The gospel is not a call for us to do something in order to be saved, but once we are saved, we are called to act There are things to do. He doesn't ask us to do anything until he's sure we know what is done for us. It does no good to tell a dead man to do anything. Dead people are notoriously disobedient. They simply will not respond. Command as you will, yell, stomp, make lists. 
Put them on the internet. Try to shame them. They will not act. Dead sinners cannot do what God expects. Tell a living man to do something and it can be useful. There are two extremes, it seems, and always has been. There have always been two extremes in Christian living and the understanding thereof. One is what I would call an overdone activism or really kind of a legalism, that what you do is what saves you. Your doing gets you into the kingdom or your doing keeps you in the kingdom or somehow your actions, your labor is required by God. Let me let you on a little secret, folks. The Lord does not need your good works. Never has, never will. Your neighbor could use them. That would be helpful. But the Lord does not need your good works. And so we have to be careful that we don't get the cart before the horse. We don't start with obedience first. But see, the other end of that, the other error is passivism. The old let go, let God attitude. I'll just wait till the Lord moves me. And when he moves me, then I'll act. No, my friend, the Scripture does not command you to do that. Oh, we are to rest in Christ, as we sang earlier, but that rest is the rest from our labors to somehow please God. It is the rest granted us by being freed from the guilt and the power of sin. That is rest. But we are called to action. Hear me, my friend, the war that you and I observe in this era against God, His Word, and moral and ethical matters and what it means to be truly moral in the sight of God in any way, the things we see happening around us will never be an effective battle from those who are half-hearted in their Christian commitment. Half-heartedness in this will lead to absolute accommodation and destruction. If ease is your first priority, you will never stand. I remind you again, said it before I say it again, verses 3 and 4, he's given us everything we need, he's given us great and precious promises, you are a participant in the divine nature, and you are there, and that has happened so you would escape the corruption that is in this world. Before you act as a Christian, you must be a Christian. But once you are made a Christian, there is an effectiveness, an energy that is to be at work in you, and you are to lay hold of it with this energy. Think of it this way. This is a fair illustration. Does no good to tell you to work the farm if you don't own a farm. Right? That, that seems fairly clear. I think that's simple enough even at this hour of the morning. Doesn't make any sense to tell somebody to work farm if they don't have a farm. But if you're given a farm and you're given the tools, you're given the implements, and you're given the seed, and you're given all that you need to work the farm, and somebody says, work the farm, it makes sense. When Christ has granted you life, and then he tells you, live the life. You live the life because you've been given what you need to go forth and live it. You see that word in the ESV there, supplement. 
First part of verse 5. By the way, that isn't about vitamins, minerals, essential oils, any of that other stuff. All right? When he says supplement, it's a peculiar little word, and this is where it came from. When a large dramatic production was being done, a play was being put on, in the ancient world, they invariably needed a large vocal chorus to support it. Now, you and I don't even think about this, right? A movie comes on and we may hear the musical score, right? But you're not usually thinking about the musical score. You're not thinking about what it takes for there to be that musical background unless you're a music geek. I'm not going to look up. I'll be in trouble from the get... Somebody, and somebody had to pay for that. Now, of course, in modern dramatic production, right, in movies, they get investors, they put their money into it, and then supposedly it's supposed to give them a return, right? Well, in the ancient world, they didn't have exactly the same thing. There were not production companies. So they would have to get a patron. And the patron was the one who had to go get the entire musical chorus, instrumentalists, vocalists, and so on. So when it says here to supplement your faith, the word there has this idea of this intensive labor. We've got faith. There's some stuff we need to add to it, and it takes some work to get it done. If the patron didn't do the labor and provide the financing for the entire choir, the instrumentalists, the production didn't happen. Peter's word here implies a serious commitment of time and activity. This requires energy. It is not something just to float through, my friends. And I think far too many think that living the Christian life is kind of a floating project. Uh, I was reading this a uh, Married couple, Glenda and Robert Lennon, were four miles off the coast of Florida fishing some years ago, and Glenda decided to take a swim. Personally, I find that a complete loss of good sense. But, um, and she got out and discovered the current had carried her too far from the boat, so she called out to her husband, who was who's away from her, and realized he needed to help her, and so I'm not sure why he didn't just move the boat, but he jumped in. Well, eventually they realize they're in a current and they're both being carried out from the boat. Her husband was an Olympic quality swimmer. So they formulated a plan. Glenda couldn't swim that well. So she just floated and treaded water. He stayed there and kept swimming against the current so he didn't get further away from the boat. Just about the time is exhausted. It's hours. He either got out of the current or it led up. He gets to the boat, clambers on the boat, gets on the radio, radios for help. It took hours and hours and hours to find Glenda. In fact, when they found her, she was still alive, but she was 20 miles away. Now, Here's reality, my friends. If you want to float through the Christian life, you may find yourself in places you don't want to be. 
the currents of this world, you don't know what may happen with that. I've always puzzled it a little bit over... Um, yeah, you ever ponder Lot, a- Abraham's uh, nephew? You know, he goes down to the cities of the plains, Sodom and Gomorrah, and he moves in. And apparently he was considered some kind of leader within these wicked communities because he's right there at the gate, which indicated leadership. And I can't tell you the number of times I heard people, well, I'm not even sure Lot was a Christian except the New Testament. You find a place, what about Lot, that righteous man who was vexed by the wickedness of the people all around him all the time? Hmm. Oh, by the by, Lot was not in a good place. As witnessed by the fact they don't exist anymore. As witnessed by the fact that the Lord barely gets him out of Sodom before destruction falls. Floating along is useless to us. Calvin put it this way. There's no place for laziness or for following the calling of God easily or carelessly, but keen zeal is a necessity. Zeal. There's an energy to this thing. All right? Look for that. Create. You say, well, I don't know where to find it. Then start doing it, and the energy needs to show up. Give this your attention. So there is an energy expected. But secondly, there's a productivity that's expected. Middle of verse 5, down to verse 8. With virtue, adds to your faith, virtue, virtue, knowledge, knowledge, self-control, self-control, steadfastness, steadfastness, godliness, godliness, brotherly affection, brotherly affection, love. Christian virtues that must be added as to one another move upward in the pursuit of this spiritual maturity. Notice where he begins. He begins with faith. Make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue. By the way, another way to translate that word with is in. Faith in virtue. Virtue then in this and so on. The idea is these are inter- connected. Now, the order is not the point of the text, and I want to be careful here that it's not, okay, so first I get faith, got that, check. Now I got to work on virtue, whatever that means, and once I figure out what it means and figure out if I've got it, then check. Now I can start on knowledge. That's not what's done here. Peter's using a literary device. All of these things are interwoven. It's kind of like the fruit of the Spirit You notice it's singular fruit of the Spirit and a list. That's because you don't pick and choose the fruit of the Spirit. All that stuff is supposed to be borne out in your life. On this side, all of these Christian graces are part of what you add. You begin with faith, the entrance to the kingdom. With that, you add to the character of this faith, virtue. Literally, you could call it moral energy or goodness. It's the same word that Peter uses at the end of verse 3 to describe God's quality of moral excellence. It's it's used in Philippians 4.8. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's any excellence, If there's anything worthy of praise, think about these. Peter uses chapter 2, 
of his first letter, verse 9, you're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who calls you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Christian, you are to have an energetic faith that shows up with a moral energy of virtue in how you live. Things that are excellent. Knowledge. Understanding. Here, it's likely to know and understand the will of God. It is never expected. And I find this dichotomy frustrating. You, my friend, are to be active in Christian living. It is to be energetic. There are things to do. But the doing is always connected with knowing. You do not separate those things. Far too often I run into Christians who say, well, you're all concerned about all that doctrinal stuff, and I just want to live for Jesus. Well, isn't that just peachy? What does that even look like? Well, I, 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 uh, I want to love him. Well, how do you love him? Uh, well, uh, uh, if you love me, keep I I'll have to obey him. How do you know what to obey? Knowledge and action in Scripture are never set up as enemies. Ever. Now, are there warnings? Of course. Lots of zeal and energy without knowledge leads you bad places. Lots of knowledge without any action leads you bad places. But when you put those things together, there is good that comes from that. Years ago in my previous church, had a dear, dear couple, members of the church, retirees. His name was Elvie. E-L-V-I-E, Elvie Reimer. And Elvie could come across grumpy. And I always wondered, Elvie's background was very blue-collar. He worked hard, generous to a fault. And Jeanette, his wife, she'd look after kids, her kids, anybody's kids. I don't know how many times our kids ended up staying at Elvie and Jeanette's while we were trying to do other things. But I wondered, because I, I, I got the impression there are times that Elvie was really studying, listening to what I was preaching, but I wasn't sure what good I was necessarily doing. I was praying it was. He'd occasionally ask a question here or there, and I'd try to explain it. And I remember this vividly, that one day, in a conversation with him, he said, Doug, I used to wonder, I used to wonder, why me? He said, I married Jeanette, she was a Christian, I wasn't, and I wasn't interested in any of this stuff. And he said, I didn't live well. I didn't treat her the way I should have. But he said, one day I came to faith. I trusted Christ. And he said, I always wondered why. What happened? I just really couldn't explain it. 
He said, how did I go from not being interested to suddenly being it? This was the, I'm paraphrasing. And he said, it finally, he said, I get it. God did it. God chose me before I was born. The Spirit of God overcame. And now I get it. Thank you. Amen. You and I are to have this expected productivity of knowledge, of self-control, this inward work, temperance, moderation, that enables the believer to avoid falling prey to temptation. Can you imagine for a moment with me that Simon Peter knew this one well? Moderation, because he certainly had not been moderate in his failures. He was an impulsive man, and his impulsiveness had gotten him into trouble. Now he sees the value of self-control. Further, he adds to that steadfastness, patient endurance. And here's the man who couldn't endure seeing Jesus arrested, couldn't endure seeing him suffer, couldn't endure the idea of a dying Savior. Christian, these things are to be added in your life. Godliness, living in a way that pleases the Lord in every aspect of our lives. Brotherly affection, literally Philadelphia is the word that's used here. There's supposed to be a relationship to believers, a love for those fellow Christians. Look around. See these people? I know. I mean, I'm not looking at anybody. It's all right. Look around. It's family. Well, I don't know them. Well, whose fault's that? Well, what if I talk to them and find out that I don't like them? Then love them anyway. What if they annoy me? Let you in on a little secret. you probably a little annoying yourself. We are called for brotherly love. And finally then he says love after brotherly affection. And I believe this is the relationship to others, especially, particularly non-Christians. Now, brothers and sisters, do you see the list? Are you following me here? Virtue, knowledge, self-control, steadfastness, godliness, brotherly affection, and love. Boy, that sounds a lot like the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. True and living faith always ends with love as the core element of all that we do. But my dear family member, do you ever ponder the list? <laughs> you ever sat and meditated on that a little bit? How am I doing here? Our calling Yes, there's an expected energy. There's an expected productivity. That's one of the reasons I had us read John 15. I'm the vine, you're the branches. If you abide in me and I abide in you, you will do what? Bear fruit. And then he goes on to say, you'll bear much fruit. And part of that fruit is Christian character. 
Finally, consider this. This exposes a danger. There's an expected energy and productivity that this comes with a warning and exposes a danger. Whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted he's blind, having forgotten that he's cleansed from his former sins. Now, these graces are supposed to be progressive. They're supposed to be increasing, we're told in that eighth verse. verse. If these qualities are yours and are increasing, you're to be fruitful. John 15, Galatians 5, uh, Romans 8, verses 3 and 4, and 12 and 13. So these things are to be progressing. But if you lack these things, it's a sight problem. Whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted he is blind. If these aren't in place, if these graces aren't in you and increasing in you, you're missing something essential. You're not seeing. I, I pondered that for a minute. No longer than a minute, but I pondered that for a little while. Okay? What does it mean you're not seeing? And then something eventually found the file. Excuse me, Paul prays something in Ephesians, the first chapter. For this reason, because I've heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus, your love toward the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the knowledge of him. Now listen to the 18th verse, this is Ephesians 1. Having the eyes of your heart enlightened, Now he's praying that for believers. Having the eyes of your heart enlightened, why? That you may know what is the hope to which he's called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance of the saints, and the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe. Christian, here's what I'm going to tell you. If you don't take this action, if you don't look at these things and ponder these things, you start becoming blind to these things. And that blindness leads to a lack of productivity, ineffectiveness, and stumbling and staggering about. You're not where you should be. It's almost like, I I, I think, maybe a spiritual vision test. Are these things increasing in you? Is there greater energy more self-control, greater knowledge, more brotherly love, more endurance. And you see, these graces are always the result of salvation. He says, he goes, he goes on to describe it this way, he's forgotten, he's been cleansed from his former sins. Apparently, it's possible for a believer to be slack in these things to such an extent, there's a blindness, a dullness. Now, I know some of you wait, but, but now, now, preacher, if that's the way somebody is, they're not a Christian. An apostle just disagreed with you. I'm going with him. Well, there ought to be a warning then. Verse 10. I mean, just panicked. I'm not starting it today. Next week. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm what? Your calling and election. 
King James says, make your calling and election sure. Oh, there's a warning built in, brothers and sisters, but there's also a grace that you and I ought to have. I'm always intrigued when I see how we relate to other believers. And after nearly 50 years of Christian living and being around other believers, there are times I look at Christians and I, I'll own it. I wonder. They, they claim Christ, but there doesn't seem to be anything going on there that's good. I worry for them, and I pray for them, and I pray for the Lord to awaken them, either to awaken them out of their lethargy or that they're actually just dead in the trespasses and sins and don't get it. But I've also seen Christians go through cycles where they're, they are kind of dim, dull. They're not engaged and my prayer then is, Lord, at one point I saw life. I'm praying that that life was real. Father, help them out of that. Grant them the energy they need again. Save them from themselves. Let there be growth and maturity. You all have kind of noticed, haven't you, that not everybody grows at the same rate. Right? You know, occasionally, I've, I've watched this on a, on a human level, I, I've run into 14-year-olds that acted like they were 30, and vice versa. We mature at different rates, and sometimes, sometimes folks in growing up, they, they get off track. It's about the time when they're teenagers and decide their parents are stupid. What they don't recognize is they're the ones who need to be, in the words of Samuel Clemens, stuck in a barrel with the lid nailed on and fed through the bunghole is what it's called. And then when they hit a certain age, close the hole. Um, And I think there's a parallel possibly even in Christian living. I think there are times Christians in their growing can have stages where they're not doing as well. They get a little off track. And I see that. And I pray for them. I pray the Lord bring them back around. Now I know somebody says, well, you're being awfully generous. They may not be Christians. You're right because part of what I pray then is, Lord, if they're not yours, save them. But they may be yours. And if they're yours, Lord, discipline them, chasten them, bring them home, take the blinders off. Oh, dear family, let's end it here, okay? I know some of you have been waiting for this for a long time, so we'll, we'll wrap it up at this moment. Use with vigor what the Lord has given you. Don't treat it lightly. He has rescued you. He has given you everything you need for life and godliness. So get busy. Go back to the farm analogy. Get on the tractor and get to plowing. Okay? 
Work on the weeding. Work on the pruning. See these traits. Pursue them. Lord, help me. With, Lord, I, I know I struggle. I'm impulsive. Help me not be impulsive. Help me have patient endurance. <laughs> well, you know how that works, right? He puts you in places where you have to patiently endure. He, he doesn't flip the lid here and pour it in. He already has it in you. He's just going to make you exercise it. And virtue. And knowledge. And brotherly affection. Well, I, I need to know more Christians. But it's, I'm, I'm kind of an introvert and I, I'm a little freaked out about talking to people. I don't think I can talk to a lot of people. Okay, talk to one. That's one more than you're doing now. We extroverts don't know what to do with you other than that. Use what you're given. Be productive in the Christian life. Make progress. Don't be blind. Don't forget. Be reminded. And so live to the glory of Almighty God, your Savior. Let's pray.